Well, welcome to the uh, Foundation for a Path Forward, Islam Unravel, the anti-racism podcast. We really appreciate uh, Professor Raida Hassan, and you're from the, uh, the University of Montreal at Quebec. Mm -hmm. and, exactly. And then also uh, in the Department of Psychology as a clinical psychologist and a professor of clinical psychology. And, uh, and now going into really the purpose of this discussion is your work on uh, with, uh, with the Canada Practitioners Network for the Prevention of Radicalization and Extremist Violence. So quite a lot there because there's clinical psychology and radical extremism. And, and we all know that uh, mental health issues uh, do kind of influence uh, radicalization and extremism. So maybe to start off, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself and how you got into this work and then how you uh, from clinical psychology transitioned to specializing in extremism and radicalization yeah sure thank you Tarek so I you know my interest in studying uh my interest in working really with the work on violence so uh you know as a war survivor myself and uh and and then having the opportunity to 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 study in in a domain that I love, which is clinical psychology, my main focus was always uh, supporting and preventing in, in violence context. And I was both working in family-related violence, gender-based violence, but also uh, organized violence. So, you know, refugees, immigrants, or individuals who have uh, experienced conflict and violence. And so extremism was always there because a lot of the conflicts that people have experienced is connected in some way to different forms of extremism. So even before we started calling these forms violent radicalization or violent extremism, and then gradually, you know, um, I, I guess starting with 9-11 and the war on terror, and, and, and we know some of the negative consequences of, of the war on terror on marginalized communities, my interest became even more, uh, you know, stronger and more developed. And then things just, you know, <laughs> went on into now what we call more violent radicalization or violent extremism. And this is how, you know, I got to, to be interested in doing that work. And most importantly, I think uh, the desire was really to help practitioners and people working on ground facing the daily challenges. Uh, in providing services while really addressing and reducing stigmatization. And, and with our modern age and unprecedented times with social media and the proliferation of uh, conspiracy theories and uh, misinformation, false information, disinformation. So we're at a stage in society where uh, polarization, uh, racism, um, prejudices, are, are becoming at all-time highs. And so the role of social media in mental health issues and then leading into misinformation rabbit holes that result into full-blown uh, conspiracy theories that result in people doing uh, violent attacks in real life. So, yeah, so speaking with that, uh, about that, I really want to mention that, uh, you know, mental health should be understood the way I, I work it and I see it is, it should be understood in, in the largest uh, sense. So mental health does not mean people who have a psychiatric diagnosis, right? Mental health really means just the well-being. Uh, and so it may refer to people who have more severe mental health problems, 
but it also refers to anybody who's experienced actually uh, a life crisis, who's making that person vulnerable and experiencing maybe some anxiety or some anger or just feeling lost or having an identity crisis or experiencing depressive uh, uh, you know, uh, feelings. So it's really because I, I want to address that because sometimes people uh, misunderstand a little bit what we mean by mental health. And this is why it is relevant for this field, because when social crises happen, such as the COVID, that is even more than a social crisis, it's like an economic, political, and public health and social crisis, uh, it may make people more vulnerable, some individuals. And when these individuals become more vulnerable and you have added factors of social isolation, uh, of confinement, of higher access or higher consumption of internet, um, and sometimes consuming the wrong <laughs> information, or let's say, you know, the more problematic information on the internet, people's vulnerability uh, and kind of emotional and cognitive openness to messages that actually can become problematic for themselves and for others become bigger, and people become more isolated, so less able to receive help and support, uh, either from significant others or just from regular you know social services or psychological services and so all these kind of connect together to make people more vulnerable to um, to misinformation to disinformation to hate to conspiracy theories because they're actually looking for answers and they will take the answer that calms the anxieties or the crisis that they are going through and and even uh, one of the most horrific acts that happened to the Muslim community in 2017, January 29th, where the uh, Quebec shooter um, was going down various rabbit holes online. And this was during the time that uh, Donald Trump uh, talked about the Muslim ban, Muslim ban, implemented the Muslim ban on, on Muslim majority countries. And, uh, and this person, the shooter, had a social media picture of him with the Make America Great Again uh, cap. And so all of these things to, to, to read up and somehow um, consume information that dehumanized Muslims and uh, prompt people to, to do what he did, which was to go into a mosque where people are praying and shoot them in the back. And, and it, it goes to show that, you know, otherwise a normal person, but then through isolation, through, uh, through, through just going down these rabbit holes. And one of the things we've been researching recently is the algorithms. And there's a book called The Algorithms of, of, of Oppression, which talked about the, the, the Google alg algorithm, the Facebook algorithm that, that uh, emphasizes or the way it works is the most engaged content gets ranked the highest. And so, or most relevant. And so, so, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's accurate information. And so we know online hate uh, proliferates exponentially more than real news or real facts. And so if what the algorithms are serving up are that radicalized content that is uh, it further increasing somebody's prejudice and bias, um, the algorithms themselves are are reinforcing these biases and prejudices to to eventually get a person to that critical edge where they start to think about violent attacks against other people. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that, uh, so, I mean, it's, it's a pretty complex thing because there are no one trajectories, right? So when we try to do research on understanding trajectories that lead to violent radicalization or extremism, we quickly see that, you know, we cannot come out with three or four trajectories, right? So there are no uh, clear set trajectories. Uh, people have different vulnerabilities and they these risk factors added to their vulnerabilities kind of interplay together to increase risk. But the internet plays a significant role in that it catalyzes. Uh, it put, it's like it puts oil in fire, basically, uh, in terms, in more simple terms uh, uh, for risk. And it kind of, uh, you know, produces what we have always said and what you're referring to in, ter in terms of algorithm to those kinds of echo chambers. So people just receiving an echo back and back uh, what they think and then kind of further uh, confirming them in what they think and making them think that because they are consistently receiving this information, that actually this information is shared by a lot of people, which is not necessarily true. And it must be true because, you know, it's coming back and sometimes from trusted people or trusted sources. So there is there is like a significant trap, you know, in, 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 uh, in the media content. And we have seen through analyses that in most cases where attacks have happened, uh, internet at some point was uh, you know, a, a factor, either because people searched for information, searched for ideas for planning, or were simply, you know, exposed to content or to other individuals who basically encouraged them to do that. Add to that, uh, you know, personal distress, mental health distress, the example of the Quebec shooter had also some mental health issues, uh, social isolation, and then you just go into this kind of disconnected, uh, you know, you kind of disconnect from the reality in the sense that you're, you go into your own uh, scheme and you think that that's, that's the only way uh, finally to, you know, to act. Um, and of course there are triggers and for some people, internet and social media may play that trigger role for others, there may be other factors that trigger them into violent action. And, and the initial aspect of information itself is one thing. And then there's the, the social aspect of people that share these beliefs and ideas and to connect and communicate with them. And from a mental health perspective, people have a desire for longing, a desire for significance, a desire for some sort of friendship or brotherhood or belonging. And so the misinformation is there. And then there are people that share these beliefs and some share it in more extremes than, than maybe the people that are initially um, getting mm -hmm. this. And so what's unprecedented in this time is that people can connect to literally dozens, hundreds, thousands, millions of people around the world that share these ideologies. And that, again, feeds into not only misinformation, but this group think and mob mentality online that further further uh, encourages them um, case in point there's the uh, the tree of life synagogue uh, shooter and he said you know something about a conspiracy that that synagogue was somehow you know uh, taking care of central american 
uh, immigrants and refugees, and he felt it was his duty to to put a stop to it. And then obviously the anti-Semitic and anti-Jewish sentiment that he had, and he killed eleven people. So so, but he posted it online. And same with a lot of these uh, the the uh, the Christchurch shooter, they they post what they're going to be doing online this is what they're planning this is what they're going to do so it's like they want that significance they want to be known they want people to know they did this so let's maybe talk about how the misinformation and now this group think and and how that's also influencing uh society case in point cap the january 6th capital uh, insurrection and how all these pieces are coming together yeah it's i mean it's very interesting what, what you're saying because um, there is this, what, you know, this kind of quest for significance and belonging. We have seen it a lot during the COVID crisis, where people were isolated, were confined, and then suddenly they found those spaces, uh, those group, you know, chat groups or whatever, you know, they found those belonging spaces where they suddenly started, you know, sharing their time and their ideas and their emotions and felt like like-minded, like-living people. So. Absolutely, to your point, what the internet is is providing is those those I call them illusions because they are not real belonging, right? They are not real strong uh, longer term bonds like you would find in real life. They are experienced as real, of course, when the person is, but they are providing that feeling that the person is belonging to a group. And then what happens is that this kind of uh, produces this feeling of group solidarity. Sometimes we even talk about identity fusion, meaning that the person kind of loses gradually their own, uh, you know, their own individualized identity, what kind of differentiates them from others. And this identity fuses with the group discourse. So basically the person, it's as if the person becomes, um, you know, talks on behalf of the group, talks, repeats the same discourses, ideas, and, and they have very little capacity to kind of differentiate themselves from what the group leader, for example, is saying. And uh, so there's this aspect that kind of reinforces the beliefs and the, the kind of the attachment to the beliefs because we are attached to a group. A lot of studies around violent radicalization and extremism have shown that what actually attracts people into group is not so much the ideology at first. It's really that the fact that they can belong. They finally feel that they are part of a group, that they have like this kind of family, you know what I mean? Now, what, it, what you are referring to in terms of people telling what they're gonna do on the internet is that sometimes what happens is that in addition to that belonging, there's this kind of um, wanting to portray oneself as a hero you know, somebody who's gonna do something right and who's gonna do something heroic and they're gonna get admiration, they're gonna get, uh, you know, the, this portrayal of themselves as heroic. They're gonna get on one side the admiration and on the other side, they're gonna impact communities in even more traumatic ways than just what they did. And so, you know, because we know that when an attack happens and the pictures of that attack are relayed on internet. We do know that it had a lot of traumatic impact on any people who, any person who would identify with the community or with the individuals who are being attacked. 
And so the impact of an attack is not just on the immediate victims, it's also on the community, on every individual that identifies. And then what happens is that those extremist groups reify those people as heroes, you know, who, those attackers, as heroes and models of inspiration that they should look up to. And we see that in conversation within extremist groups, you know, in the chats and in the conversation, people referring to the acts that these different individuals have committed as models, as heroes that should be followed. And so in prevention, we consistently repeat the message that we should avoid any portrayal of attackers as heroes or as victims or as monsters, because in both cases, they become attractive to people who are vulnerable to these kinds of ideas and acts. We should portray them as real humans who have a lot of problems and who have done very hurtful things that need to be, you know, that need to be repaired and commute where we also need to repair for the communities and that need to be held accountable for what they have done. Uh, we need to do those prevention efforts because this can indeed be a, you know, a strong slippery slope. Absolutely. And there's a movement, uh, no notoriety by not naming the shooters, um, because by keep repeating their names, it again, they become mythologized, they become uh, martyrs to their uh, uh, sympathizers. And so case in point, the, the, the shooter in, in Christchurch, he had the name of the Quebec shooter uh, uh, written on, on his weapon while he was doing uh, what he did. So he had inspiration from Quebec. And then on top of that is this whole subculture of, uh, of terminology and uh, even, even music and uh, like uh, case in point, the, the term remove kebab is the, the, the number one anti-Muslim search term. Uh, most, most general public don't know, doesn't know what that means. What, what is remove kebab? It sounds kind of crazy, but then, uh, doing the, the research that this was the anthem the Serbian uh, militias would play when they were uh, exterminating Bosnian Muslims during the, the Serbian-Bosnian War in the 90s. So remove kebab is a term that they'll use where it, innocuously nobody will necessarily know what it means unless people that are part of that subculture. Mm -hmm. And then there's an anthem and this the Christchurch shooter was playing this anthem on his way to his attack. So they, they have a subculture of terminology, of, of, of music, uh, so many elements. And then I, I want to talk about the white replacement theory or conspiracy theory or white genocide and how it's leading into this victimization mentality by certain elements of the white supremacist uh, uh, groups out there. And let's talk about their ideologies and what's influencing uh, their their efforts uh, to present. Yeah. So so in terms of in terms of these, I mean, it's it's whether being related just just before we tackle the white supremacy as such, uh, what you are referring to is is so interesting because once a person has their foot in the door, let's say, often what we discover is that to kind of attract a person into this extremist uh, group, uh, it's often through your day-to-day -day socialization activities. So music, you know, going to this uh, 
to this person's uh, get together or to a party or to a bar, whatever. And through music, or, or did you listen to that song? So there's a lot of introduction through day-to-day uh, -day ways, and we call them those day-to-day -day socialization into the extremist movements. You wouldn't start immediately with highly violent ideologies. Most people would retract. But if you gradually introduce, you know, through music or through, you know, those subtle messages, socialization, belonging, being, feeling accepted, feeling part in the group, and gradually you kind of feed that, you know, you socialize the person into the ideology. And the function that these songs have to actually kind of, and they, they have been used, they have been used in the armies, they have been used across history, these kinds of war anthems, you know, to, to kind of mobilize the emotions and even further like cut oneself from the empathy basically before committing an act. So this has a specific function. In terms of white supremacy groups, I think we're seeing that, we're, I mean, extreme violent right and, and, and uh, white supremacy, uh, violent white supremacist groups, these, these have been coming up and down through history, right? So it's not nothing necessarily new, uh, but now we are seeing a, a resurgence of these groups. There are a lot of groups in Canada. Now, fortunately, right now in Canada, although there are many groups, a lot of them are small in terms of membership. Uh, and this is still reassuring. <laughs> so in terms of people who are actually, you know, call themselves as active members of these groups. Where it comes from, I mean, it's a set of very complex social, economic, and of course, political conditions. And often we see when you have social and economic crises, whether these crises are true or whether they are perceived, it becomes a very ripe environment for this polarization because we need to find the guilty, right? We need to find those scapegoats. We need, I mean, it's a psychological process. When something happens to you that you feel is out of control and you feel that you are losing more and more control on, on your daily activities and also having feeling that you are experiencing more and more grievances, then you tend to try to find who's responsible for that. And this is where uh, collective discourses become built in trying to find the scapegoated person, the person who's, or the group who's responsible for that. And they will often be these groups, the minority groups, the marginalized groups that will be constructed gradually publicly and socially as enemies or as threats. Add to that specific political discourses that are connected to you know, economic and geo-economic geo conflicts and priorities that certain countries have, it becomes practical to construct certain communities as enemies. I and mean, we can think about the Russian <laughs> during the Cold War, well, the Cold War, as we say, we can think about the Muslims for the past uh, several, several years that we cannot ignore that it's, we, we have to understand that it's also connected to very specific political and economic um, let's say interests and, 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 and issues that are happening between Arab and more Muslim world countries and, and, and the Western countries. But what's happening locally is that as the population, and if you like, look at the bigger number of um, white supremacy movements being really in the central states of the US, for example, if we look at the US, 
a lot of them are, you know, your, um, you know, a white, let's say, the, the, the citizen who is actually today, despite considering themselves as the real citizens of the country, struggling with economic difficulties, with access to job, with education, feeling, perceiving themselves as experiencing grievances, as being more and more controlled by their governments and deprived of their freedom by their governments. And so they are trying to find the guilty for that. And this is how also the political opinion will mobilize this anger toward a specific enemy. If, if we look at Trump, for example, and Trump discourses, it was clearly discourses putting oil on fire and directing your, you know, the frustration of these groups toward specific constructed enemies, which are the mostly immigrants, Muslim communities more specifically, but also immigrants and anybody basically who is identified as not non-white or not, not part of that, of that group. Whereas when you think about it, often when we do prevention, we try to tell people, we try to tell them you are experiencing the same difficulties that immigrants or those other individuals you're marginalizing are experiencing. You're basically experiencing the same grievances that the current system is responsible for these grievances, not one or the other group. So Tarek, I don't know if I'm making myself clear here. I have the impression that <laughs> I lost some clarity. But what I'm trying to say is that those movements build on the grievances that they are feeling and attribute those grievances to specific groups identified as others by whom? By themselves, but also by dominant political and social discourses. And so it's important to be conscious of that. It's not just an individual issue. There are political and social issues there. And, in, and prevention has to take all these levels into consideration. And, and now using social media as a weapon and the weaponization of social media by uh, even uh, state actors uh, in terms of, of using uh, tools like Facebook and, and, uh, and other social media to polarize communities further and divide them further on various issues like uh, 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 the black racism or LGBTQ or Democrat, Republican, or left, right, abortion, anti-abortion. So all of these things just to keep, uh, keep the divisions going and the age old uh, uh, British Empire axiom uh, divide and rule, but now having these modern tools to be able to do it with, with minimal expense. So instead of like standing armies, uh, destroy societies from within by getting them to fight and war amongst themselves. So uh, one key issue of weaponization of social media on, on a genocidal scale is Myanmar, where Facebook going into Myanmar, they're the ones uh, subsidizing the internet for the country of Myanmar. Their website is the primary tool in which people see the world in Myanmar. And then all these conspiracy theories about Muslims started to be uh, circulated on Facebook and demonized uh, Muslims in Myanmar, the Rohingya, and resulted in, in, in 
tens of thousands of people being killed, a million refugees. So, uh, and then if we look at moderators or people that moderate content in the English language, most of their budgets are for the English language content, but other countries that may have, you know, certain dialects that, that they won't even warrant that expense for moderating content and it's left to go unchecked and 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 governments weaponize social media on on a big scale but also on a smaller scale to keep dividing people on many different levels in in western societies now absolutely, and absolutely. If, if you could talk about how you know again with mental health and how it, it's even just kind of leading into a sense of hopelessness for certain people in, in, in society, because there's almost like there's no centrist voice. It's one extreme or the other. And the vast majority don't ascribe to far right or far left. And yet all we're hearing is because of these algorithms that, that are prioritizing uh, uh, extremely engageable content that, that people find sensational, that the, the actual moderate voices are, are drowned out. Yep, absolutely. And actually, that speaks to several of the uh, studies on uh, the, the, the influence of conspiracy theories. So what we find is that people, uh, there are not many, uh, you know, strong influencers in terms of conspiracy theory. But the problem is that their effect is massive. So it doesn't take too many to actually reach out to a lot of people and have that, that strong impact on a lot of people. So I think that's, that, that, that is as well an issue. Now, in terms of the, um, Tara, can you come back on the question? I just suddenly had a full, <laughs> I guess you're gonna you're gonna the weaponization of some cutting right this is not online this is not direct or <laughs> yeah it, it, and it, and we can cut this out but the the weaponization of social media and yeah. how that weaponization yeah. is dividing societies on oh yeah yeah the the, the mid voices yeah exactly. exactly so I think what's happening is that uh, and and this has been historically the case. Uh, the way that uh, media outlets get their money, get their attention is from right the clicks, the likes, the uses, the transfers, um, and engagement time. Engagement time, and it it has been. I mean, they they have discovered a while ago that people will engage in things that are polarized, that are sensational. This is what. This is where our vulnerability lies in terms of engaging with information. Information that is complex, nuanced, longer, explained in long, very, you know, kind of nuanced text becomes boring for your, for your user, especially in, in today's world where you have to consume quick information. And so there is something inherent to the way that uh, information and uh, to, to the way that economic and the information se uh, system is connected. And it is inherently problematic in my point of view that makes those polarized messages more popular, easier, um, people have, you know, easier to believe in because they require less, you know, cognitive, mental, emotional effort to kind of understand. And so people relay that. 
And the big tech companies and the media companies have understood that. So they use that. And what it does, as you said, with the algorithm, with the echo chambers, et cetera, is that it silences the people in the middle, let's say, but also um, it makes them appear as silent because they attract less of the attention. The impact is less strong. And they are also given less, uh, they, they, they will be less interviewed, uh, they are given less voice and themselves speak out less because they tend to be in the middle, because they tend to be noticed, because they don't have something extraordinarily sensationalist to say. And so they tend to take less time and be less attractive. And so we have to, uh, as you said, we in, in media, the way that we relay information, we have to work on relaying less and less sensationalist information because we know that the impact is bigger and give more and more space to, the, to this information that's situated in the middle and to individuals who have more moderate voices. But then you gotta go convince the big news companies and the big tech and media companies to do that. And this has been a significant challenge and as you said, the profit motive, because they, they are corporations and they are uh, they have a, a quote unquote fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to provide the maximum return on investment quarter by quarter, uh, year by year, they have to keep increasing revenues and profits at the expense of society's mental well-being and society as a whole, uh, as long as they get that engagement, the user base and everything keeps moving in an upward direction, the actual collateral damage of what happens to people's psyches and their relationships and the countries themselves are, are actually a, a minor a priority, it seems, to these, these, these uh, social media companies. And another argument is they if they regulate themselves, another uh, social media company from another country won't regulate and, and, and then they're afraid of missing out. So it's almost like a catch 22. If we regulate ourselves, we stop it. Another company that doesn't do what we do, they can take their market share. So they become in this kind of locked arms race for, for uh, viewers and for, uh, for users. Exactly. And then it becomes very complex, meaning how much resources are needed? What kind of resources? What kind of, so if, I mean, if you, you likely do know that you have individuals, humans that are moderating uh, extreme content, right? Um, and so how do, you, how do you train those individuals? How do you take care of them? You know, they are exposed to all sorts of horrific images that they have to take out or discourses. What kind of resources are available? How much it will cost the companies? What kind of laws and regulations have been developed? Uh, so unfortunately, internet is behaving in ways that has escaped our control. Um, and sometimes our capacities and sometimes even our understanding of how to regulate that content. Speaking also to the issue that in some countries you have regulations that will allow you to regulate, you have laws, and in other countries you don't. And so, it, it, I this is why I think that there should be a global effort. It cannot just be a local effort of one tech company or one country. It really has to be a global effort around how do you regulate uh, content that is clearly extremely harmful um, 
to individuals or to communities. For example, uh, you know, videos of attacks, some clear calls for violent actions or for genocide. This is content that obviously needs to be regulated. But the problem is that it's both, there's the issue of will, you're right, and there's the issue of understanding how and what tools to do it. And, and you talked about nuance. And so the nuance as it relates to uh, minorities, uh, let's say uh, people from the Muslim faith and, uh, and then the black community, First Nations, uh, Jewish community, LGBTQ and, uh, and other communities. So the nuance of what is offensive to certain communities is at times lost on these companies. So if the board of directors of many of these tech companies and their primary investors are white Caucasian as an example, so if they're white Caucasian male, they have only one perspective on, on the way uh, they view racism and they view uh, oppression and they view uh, discrimination because they, they can only see it from their own lived experience. And without those diverse uh, perspectives and views and nuance, um, they're not going to see how harmful and dangerous it is because it doesn't affect them. And so that's, that's another key aspect of uh, a lot of these organizations, they are for-profit companies, but they are almost like utilities for information that used to be governed by governments in terms of libraries and, and, and university institutions, but now for-profit companies have a monopoly on how information is being uh, ranked and, and presented. And, and as a result, we're, we're in a situation where only a certain view of society is being being represented and the minority communities uh, are because of lack of will, as you said, lack of resources, whatever, or all of the above, um, the nuanced uh, respect for other communities is not there in social media. And maybe we can talk about how the, the mental health issues in terms of of minorities and people of, of color and, and religious minorities, uh, because of all this, um, I think there's almost like uh, much more uh, mental health issues for, for minority communities because we have to deal with multiple layers of discrimination. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, this is, this is very true. Um, and it all relates to what you, you said, the issues of privileges, right? Um, and the fact that we, we see the world from within our privileges, so it becomes very difficult to understand the inherent bias, unless we have a very diverse. Uh, racialized communities and people from minorities, the trouble is that they face uh, several experiences of discrimination and exclusion. Sometimes it's direct, and sometimes it's very subtle and indirect in the way that our institutions function. Um, and they have to, 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 to develop a lot of resiliency. And unfortunately, with the rise of white supremacy and with the rise of you know, what, what we can call on the extreme violent right spectrum. Um, there are very, let's say, tragic uh, big events and attacks. But what's also less uh, given attention is those daily aggressions um, that, you know, they're, they're, they're not illegal. Uh, they're not, you know, spectacularly tragic. Um, they are those daily events, those daily hurtful words, those daily discriminatory acts that the communities have to face and that they have to deal 
with the anxiety that it provokes, but also sometimes with the feeling of injustice and anger, and also with the kind of, unfortunately, you know, losing the trust. So what I always say is that what is essential for community and for society well-being generally is to be able to, to feel a sense of security and trust with the people who live around us. But when the people who live around you become a source of discrimination and exclusion, then this relationship of trust, this basic human need, the need for security, um, is threatened, which significantly affect uh, mental health issues. And I think that uh, prevention programs now, we need to mobilize. So we need to empower our communities to be able to develop resiliency uh, in the face of hate, to, 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 to be more present. So that's another issue as well, is that sometimes we kind of you know, push back and kind of close to protect ourselves and to protect our community. We have to make the effort to become, to have our voices heard more, to be more present, to be more active. Uh, we need to be empowered to, you know, from within develop initiatives that help us build resiliency to hate and to discrimination and not wait and not depend for the resources or the power or the opportunities to come from outside. We really have to start mobilizing from the inside because this is the only way to have, uh, you know, to, to advance because from the inside, it means people who know, people who have experienced, who have both like kind of experiential knowledge, but also that kind of, uh, they can go get resources so we can empower our youth, for example, to be able to develop resiliency to hate and kind of code unquote counter discourses uh, to the hateful discourses we, that, that, they, that they face on, on sometimes for some on, I wouldn't say daily basis, but very, very often. Your mic is muted, Tom. <laughs> Sorry about that. And the real world engagement is the is the key uh, to get people to know one another, to get to know each other. And so uh, part of what we've done in British Columbia is do something what we call the interfaith exchange, where we would visit churches and synagogues on their days of worship as friends and neighbors and then be a source to answer any questions that people might have about Islam and Muslims. And on the flip side, invite people to our mosque for, for Juma and for other programs and, and break bread and get to know one another. Because as you said, most people just stick within their communities. And by doing that on this, uh, on this local level, uh, friendships and relationships are built. But one of the amazing things we learned uh, from the Muslim context is that uh, in many of the churches and synagogues that we visited, many people said they'd never met a Muslim before. So if they'd never met a Muslim before, the next question is, so what do you know about Islam and Muslims? And uh, they would say, well, whatever we see online or, or from their community. And we had one pastor that said, uh, when we came, what would Jesus forward in an email? <laughs> Meaning a lot of conspiracy theories about Muslims, like somehow Muslims are trying to implement Sharia law in Canada is a big conspiracy theory. Uh, female genital immunization is, is another conspiracy theory that they, they bandy about, uh, terrorists and all that sort of thing. So 
by getting to know one another, visiting each other's place of worship and, and, and creating those friendships, it really brought down a lot of walls of, 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 uh, of yeah. ignorance. And uh, one key thing that we've done on a systemic level is we've started school presentations with uh, multiple um, groups. So from our First Nations uh, leader, we had Jody Wilson-Raybould, the former Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada, talking about the First Nations experience, myself, Yusuf, talking about the Muslim experience, Jewish rabbis talking about the Jewish experience, uh, Asian leaders in law enforcement and others talking about being an Asian in Canada. And by having those multiple perspectives, because we kind of see things from a Muslim perspective, but to understand how do First Nations people feel or how do Asian people feel and, and how do Jewish people feel? And, and from that, it, it really helps that community building. So from a mental health perspective, as, as we talked about in, in the beginning, is bringing people together and that sense of belonging, that sense of community, that sense of, 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 of good neighbors, that, that, that is, you know, it's hard work because it's, it's one-on-one, it's, it's, it's group to group. But uh, in your opinion, have you felt that, that these kind of real world interactions help on, 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 uh, in one's mental health and, and also in, in this anti-racism work? So they absolutely do. Intercultural, interfaith, interreligious, you know, those this mixing, yeah. uh, those prevention programs around mixing uh, are very, very important because as you said, uh, it is only when we know people uh, from different backgrounds that we can develop that kind of uh, connection. And also that it's very important because it helps us kind of de-essentialize. So what we tend to do is kind of everybody like the Muslims and like all Muslims are the same right so we can tend to essentialize Jews or Muslims or you know women whatever category so when we get in touch when we when we interact when we collaboratively also work on developing for example an art project with you know youth from different faiths or different skin colors or communities and we're working toward a common goal then we develop bonds and we cannot essentialize anymore because we discover, you know, the 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 individuality of each person, um, and then we can discover the diversity within each community. So we do definitely need to continue these because they help. But what we also need to do is to encourage the connections between, because you know, we we can do that. But then the other side also is how do you attacks still happen and they will still happen. But then how do you do to reduce that? So that one ex-vulnerable individual who is on the you know uh, highly risk of committing an attack. So what do you do? So there are a lot of interventions that need to be done on the other side as well. Um, and also connections between members. We should not, and we should try to work very hard not to have individuals who are isolated to the extent that there is no one around them to detect that there is something that's worrisome happening. You know, it just does not make sense that we have individuals who can, you know, uh, uh, spend hours and hours going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into something that is clearly gonna lead them 
to a tragic consequence. And having just no one around to say, hey, something's not right. We need help. We have to do something. So the trouble is that there are people sometimes also around those vulnerable individuals or those individuals at risk that notice that there is something going wrong. They don't know where to turn or they're too afraid to ask for help. And so we also need to make those help sources accessible. And on another side, we also need to know how to tackle white supremacist or xenophobic or hateful groups. Because we can build resiliency in our communities, but if we don't ever try to tackle those groups and see how we can, from the inside, operate changes, then you know, we're, 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 we're making people more resilient to hate, but we're not necessarily reducing <laughs> the actual hate that they are experiencing. So we really need to work on all of the sides at the same time. Those, you know, very, very uh, few individuals who may be at risk of committing a tragic incident. You know, extremist groups themselves, we have to try to find ways to make them less extremists. <laughs> or at least less prone to violent action, and then building general society's uh, resilience as such. Like you have layers, right? Depending on how uh, entrenched into extremism individuals will be. Absolutely, and, and it's a lot of work and, and part of it is allyship and working together uh, uh, on multiple fronts and with yourself in Quebec ourselves in British Columbia and we have multiple people that do similar work in in the different provinces and to to work together with like-minded groups and individuals to to affect societal change because it does require top to bottom bottom up uh, approaches on multiple yeah. levels because we have a, a kind of a situation now where in Canada in the last five years 11 Muslims have been killed by uh, white supremacist uh, uh, extremists and we've had uh, countless Muslim women uh, that have been attacked uh, because of their appearance um, in, in terms of in Edmonton and Vancouver and other Calgary, uh, just for, for being Muslim, uh, the rocks thrown at them and what have you. So it is something that uh, uh, I, we just heard about a, a mosque that was uh, uh, burnt down by uh, a white supremacist in Alberta. This happened two years ago, and I, I didn't even see it in the news. So even our own uh, things that happen to our Muslim community are are under reported in the in the news media, and so yeah. by, by yeah. working together to kind of really highlight at least because we have our lived experience as Muslims to to highlight the needs of our community and to protect our community. I think part of the next steps uh, after this conversation, we can talk about how we can all work together across Canada with all the other faith communities and racial minorities and and with the the general public to to kind of really address it on a societal and a systemic level. And, uh, and we really appreciate you taking your time to kind of share your expertise and your background, which is significant because it is a multi-layered approach. And, and the key takeaway for mental health and self-care, are there any recommendations for people to take care of themselves, their mental health and emotional health uh, in these unprecedented times as a takeaway for this. <laughs> so I think the, the, first, uh, the first one is to go back on belonging. <laughs> we should not 
uh, keep ourselves isolated in these situations. We need to seek help, and you know, we need to seek the presence and and the, the, the being being able to confine in people who have always been significant, uh, you know, people in our lives to go back to connect with community. That is with the communities, with the real world. <laughs> you know, real people, flesh and bone, <laughs> communities. Um, I think one important uh, message is also uh, we need to educate and inform parents on their role uh, to uh, help their children to understand internet and social media and to understand their behaviors on internet and social media, as well as parents' behaviors and social media themselves. We need a, another way is to uh, avoid being overexposed. So, you know, you don't need to look and look and look again for that hateful message and relay, look what happened to that person. And it's important to inform, but also to protect ourselves from being overexposed to things that can become uh, traumatic for ourselves. So that's very important. But I think that also, you know, supporting parents and educating parents and families and their youth and young children about the place and the space that internet and social media must and must not take uh, in our lives is really very important. Um, and just generally, we need to try to continue on doing the things that do us good, whether it is sitting with friends, praying, taking a walk, taking care, doing exercise, you know, those very simple things. It's Sometimes it's funny, people tell me, is just that? Well, yes, it is just those general protective factors that do us good, that help us take care of our, of our psychological and mental health in situations where uh, we may be feeling a little bit more vulnerable and never be ashamed and never be hesitant to seek help. Because, you know, it's not about pride or reputation. We all go through difficult phases in our lives. We have to not hesitate to tell somebody, I'm not in my best right now. I need support or I need help. It's very important. Agreed. And, and Reda, we really appreciate you joining us, your valuable time to, to share your, your, your insight and your knowledge and background. Thank you again. And uh, that's the end of the podcast. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you, Tariq.